Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, I want to ask the question tonight, what does it mean to be a Christian? One of the things I discovered when I was working in pathology uh, was that everyone loves payday. Um, the lady from upstairs in the pay office would come around every fortnight and she would give us our pay slip, which was essentially um, a piece of paper like this, uh, stuck together down the sides, and there was a perforated top, and you'd rip the top off in order to see uh, what you were paid and uh, your accruing annual leave and so on. And uh, everyone loved payday. In fact, we stopped what we were doing, we stopped our work at the microscopes, uh, just to take the time to tear off the perforation and look inside. I don't know why we bothered doing it, it was the same every week, but um, there we were at work and we loved uh, this lady who'd come around, everyone was good friends with her, Um, everyone loved payday, and um, we loved to pour over our payslip. But... There was the odd occasion where the pay office got it wrong. And uh, sometimes there was a discrepancy between what we thought we'd put in our timesheet and the pay slip. And when that happened, uh, the favourite lady in the pay office um, didn't, was not so popular anymore. And people would stomp upstairs to the pay office to sort out what had gone wrong. And I think that's because we all have, don't we, this strong sense of entitlement when it comes to wages. Wages are an obligation. We earn them and so we should be paid them. It's compensation for labours done. And I think that's what Paul is saying here in verse 4 when he says, uh, speaks of, uh, for the one who works, his wages are counted as due. We can relate to that, can't we? We, we have this strong connection between work and pay. But when Paul comes to verse 5 of chapter 4, I think that what he's saying is that being Christian is not like payday. In fact, it's more like Christmas. We don't pull out our wallet and try to pay for our presents on Christmas morning. At least, we don't in my family. Have a look at verse 5. Verse 5. I think in order to sort of orient orientate us for verse 5. It's almost like we've got to go back in time to Exodus 23.7 where God says, I will not acquit the wicked. Or Proverbs 17.15 where the writer says, he who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. God hates that kind of person who justifies the wicked. Or Isaiah the prophet in chapter 5 verse 23, he pronounces woe on those who acquit the guilty. And yet, in verse 5, that is exactly 
what God does. Have a look there in verse 5. It talks about God who justifies the ungodly. In other words, he sees someone where they are with lies still on their lips, with hate still in their heart, with lust and greed and blood on their hands, still addicted, still in their sin. And he leaves no time for them to clean up their lives or improve their behaviour. And he pronounces over them the final verdict of their life as not guilty. He gives them a status before God of being justified forever. So that they cannot improve this standing before God by any good works from then on. And they cannot impoverish this standing before God by living a bad life. They are, from that moment on, from that declaration from God, they are 100% not guilty, justified, right before God. It's free. It's by faith and it's forever. Can you believe it? Being a Christian is not like payday, it's like Christmas. During the British, uh, British Conference on Comparative Religions, apparently experts around the world were debating what, if any, was the unique contribution of Christianity to the world religions. They began by eliminating possibilities. Perhaps it was a contribution of incarnation that was unique to Christianity. But then they thought, no, other religions had different versions of gods appearing in human form. Or perhaps it was resurrection. Again, they said, well, no, no, other religions have accounts of people returning from death. And the debate went on for some time until apparently, eventually, C.S. Lewis wandered into the room and asked what the rumpus was. He heard the reply from his colleagues that they were discussing Christianity's unique contribution among the world religions. C.S. Lewis responded, oh, well, that's easy. It's grace. After some discussion, uh, they had to agree that the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The Buddhists, with their eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offered a way to earn approval from the gods. Only Christianity dared to make God's love unconditional. Can you see what this does? Unlike all other religions and non-religions... Justification by faith alone undercuts human pride. We don't know what to do, do we, with extravagant generosity that's free, that's undeserved. But all of a sudden, 
the performance narrative of our lives, because that's how we live our lives, isn't it? From the time we're very small, when if we're good, we'll get an ice cream, from the time we go to school, when if we work hard, we will get good grades, to the time we enter the workplace, and if we work hard, we'll climb the ladder. When we encounter grace, all of a sudden, the performance narrative of our life is over. The pride, the arrogance, the boasting that comes from achieving and doing well is over because we're already accepted freely. On the other hand, the flip side of pride, which is self-pity and despondency and despair over failure, is also over because I am accepted 100% for free. It doesn't depend on how good or how bad I am. You remember the parable of the prodigal son and the elder brother? There are actually two ways to despise the father's love. One is by being very, very bad. The other is by being very, very good. But both sons need to reunite and be welcomed by the Father. The Father wants to welcome them freely by grace. And when we encounter that kind of grace, it means that I can no longer feel superior or condescending towards another human being. I can no longer be resentful or bitter or unforgiving to others and I can no longer feel that I, are, that I am owed more than I am getting. I can no longer serve from a motive of joyless duty. And I can no longer doubt the Father's love. Because I have not only been forgiven myself, but I have been accepted, welcomed and loved on the basis of Jesus Christ. What I'm referring to is that little word that occurs, I think, 11 times in this chapter, the word counted. Or if you've got an NIV translation, credited. Or an even older translation, reckoned. It is that transaction where my sin is transferred to Jesus' account. And Jesus' righteousness is transferred to my account. You see, to be a Christian means deep humility that excludes boasting. That's, what it, that's where it all starts, doesn't it, in verse 27. What then becomes of boasting? it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. And that is exactly what Abraham found in chapter 4, verse 2, where Abraham was justified, well, if he was justified by works, he would have something to boast in, 
But no, he believed God and it was credited to him, it was counted to him as righteousness. So firstly, that's what it means to be a Christian, deep humility that excludes boasting. Secondly, it means true happiness that knows forgiveness. True happiness that knows forgiveness. It's no wonder, is it, that David, who had encountered this kind of grace in Psalm 32, bursts into song, because that's what the Psalms are, aren't they? They're songs to God. Psalm 32, which is quoted here in the middle of these verses, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, blessed or happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It comes from a psalm where David had said earlier in that psalm, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up like the heat of summer. I think he's talking about the kind of shame and guilt and being conscience-stricken that comes from our sin. David speaks about it in another psalm of confession, Psalm 51. He says, my sin was ever before me. When I was at Bible college, I came across a little book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called Life Together. It's about 100 pages, and I think it was one of the best things I did in my time at Bible college. He says in that book, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man or a woman by him or herself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him and the more deeply he becomes involved in it. The more disastrous is his isolation because sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light And he says it's a hard struggle until sin is openly admitted. But the expressed, acknowledged, confessed sin has lost all of its power. And that's what David says and experiences in this psalm, which is quoted here. Psalm 32, verse 5, David says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I'll confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. At the end of the psalm, David concludes in verse 10 and 11 that many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, he says, and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You see, David knew the true happiness of sins forgiven. When God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, I will bless you, it wasn't ultimately to be realised in sheep and cattle 
and land. Although that was very much part of it in the Old Testament. It's interesting, I remember driving down the road once and seeing a number plate on a very nice car that said, blessed. It had his number plate personalised, but he obviously understood that what it meant to be blessed by God was to have money to buy a nice car. But Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn and blessed are those who are persecuted. You see, ultimately, what the Bible teaches about blessing is that blessedness is when you and God are in a right relationship. It means that between you and God, all is well. And you are secure and content and happy in God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Deep humility that excludes boasting and true happiness that knows forgiveness. And thirdly, I want to say tonight that to be a true Christian is to be wide-eyed in wonder that you are included. Because perhaps the most surprising thing about this letter is its title, Romans. It's hard to overstate this. I don't know if you've seen The Born Identity with Matt Damon. You remember where he wakes up from amnesia and he can't remember who he is, he's lost his identity. I wonder if most of us Gentile Christians have a kind of spiritual amnesia where we've woken up on the other side of grace and we've forgotten who we were. But the inclusion of the Gentiles was probably the most difficult thing for the Christians of the New Testament to get their heads and hearts around. This theme of Gentile inclusion dominates Acts, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and on it goes. As the writers to the New Testament and the New Testament Christians themselves come to terms with God, including not just the Jews, but the Gentiles too. That this religion that began localized in Jerusalem in one place is now for the whole world. You see, the fact is that we don't belong. And Paul reminds uh, his um, people of this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, remember, because you've forgotten, you see, you, you had spiritual amnesia, you Christians who have only just become Christians and realize the grace of God, but you've already forgotten who you were. Remember, he says, remember that you were separated from Christ, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That word alienated is a good one, isn't it? Because it, it really is. We are aliens 
in God's world, aren't we? Uh, in God's family, we don't belong. We're like Martians from another planet in God's family. We're Gentiles in a Jewish world, in a Jewish religion, with a God who gave his covenant and his promises to Jews, to Abraham. We don't belong. We're strangers to the covenants of promise, he says. We had no hope and we were without God in the world. You see, it's all very well and good, isn't it? Here in Romans chapter 4, to establish that Abraham was justified by faith. Well, that's nice, isn't it? For him, he's a Jew. And it's all very well for us to look at this quote from David where he sings about the blessedness of sins forgiven. That's wonderful for him, isn't it? Because he was born in the line of Abraham. But what about us? You see, that's the question here, isn't it? In verse 9, is this blessing then, this happiness, this joy of knowing grace and forgiveness, is this only for the circumcised? In other words, is it only for the Jews? Because if salvation has any part at all to do with works of the law, then it doesn't belong to us. But if salvation, as Paul has been arguing here, again, he keeps saying, we keep on saying that people are justified by faith. He keeps on saying that, doesn't he? He keeps coming back to that. Um, But if that is true, if people are justified by faith, they come right with God based on faith, God justifies the ungodly, then, then we've got hope. And Paul knocks it out of the park here, doesn't he, with two big arguments. The first one is back in chapter 3 and verse 30, where he says, since God is one. The first thing that he's going to use to argue that God will justify both the Jews and the Gentile on on the same basis of faith is the fact that there is only one God. And even the Jews themselves, that's their favorite memory verse, Deuteronomy, um, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And he's using this argument that God is one to the Jews to say you should include the Gentiles because there is only one God. But the second argument that he has, and I want you to see this here, is all about God's sovereignty in timing. Uh, When Heather and I got married, we had to do up our order of service. You know, um, first we'll sing a song, uh, or actually, you know, Heather will come down the aisle um, in, the, in her dress and all that kind of stuff. I'll be waiting. Uh, hopefully she'll come and all of that. And then, um, and then we, we've got to get the order of service right. And what we did was we decided that first we would do the promises, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death separates us. And then we would exchange the rings. You see, it wouldn't make sense the other way around, would it? Because the rings are a sign and a symbol of the promises of covenant made beforehand, aren't they? And so what Paul is arguing here in verses 9 to 12 is that the timing is actually important. It does actually matter whether first Abraham was circumcised and then he was justified by God, or whether he believed first and he was justified by God. And actually, what he points out here is actually there was 29 years difference between Genesis chapter 15 and Genesis chapter 17. 
But first, Abraham believed God. God said to him, you're going to have kids like the stars. You're going to have kids like the sand on the seashore. So many, you won't be able to count them. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, Abraham. And Abraham believed. And at that moment, God looked at this Abraham and he justified the ungodly. He was an idol-worshipping pagan heathen. And then 29 years later, he got circumcised. But every time the Jews thought of Abraham, they thought, he's the man of obedience. He's the man of law-keeping. He's the man who did what God told him to, even when God said, sacrifice your own son. And there he was with the knife, ready to do it. And God said, stop. I know you're obedient. But what Paul is trying to do, he's trying to, he's trying to change the way the Jews are thinking about their great ancestor Abraham to think, no, not the man of obedience. Yes, the man of obedience, but first, the father of faith. And that's why salvation goes to the world, not just the Jews, because it doesn't depend on works of obedience. It depends on faith and God's scandalous grace that justifies the ungodly. You see, God wants you to go to heaven and enter the new creation with toothpicks in your eyes in wide-eyed wonder, amazed forever that God would include you and me in his family. And so forever we'll sing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they'll reign forever. You see, once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'm going to pray and give thanks for what God has done. And after that, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much. You haven't treated us as we deserve. We thank you so much that you justify the ungodly. You welcome sinners, you include Gentiles. Thank you so, so much for your scandalous grace. We pray, Lord God, that you would keep us trusting in you. Help us always to rejoice in wonder your grace towards us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.